You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Morton Shapiro, who is the president and a professor of economics at Northwestern University, and Gary Saul Morrison, who is professor of arts and humanities and Slavic languages, also at Northwestern University. And also, they are the co-authors of a couple books. This one right here called Sense and Sensibility. Get it, right? Sense and Sensibility. And this one that just came out maybe a week ago or so, Minds Wide Shut, How the New Fundamentalisms Divide Us, which is a very timely book. Welcome to both of you. I guess we're going to start talking about this book, and then we'll, we'll lead into the Minds Wide Shut. So welcome. It's a delight to be here. Thank you, Greg. I'm sorry that we both left the faculty at Penn before you arrived as a student. It was our loss. Well, the great thing is I can still read your work, and it's as if I were in the classroom with both of you. And we'll have to talk about why you decided to teach a course together. But I wanted to start with what you start your book with in Sense and Sensibility. You talk about this notion of, of spoofing. On the one hand, it looks like your books are both pleas for interdisciplinarity to get people to think about understanding the world in a way that draws from multiple disciplines. But it's also kind of a plea for the maintenance of disciplinary boundaries. Does interdisciplinarity really require some understanding of where disciplines and others begin? I mean, do good fences make for good neighbors in the academy and in the inquiry? I love being an economics professor. I've done it at several different places. I've been blessed to be tenured at several places, so I'm not complaining. But I, somebody once said that departments can be compartments as well. And just the narrowness of many of our disciplines is a little scary. And what induced us to write this, the first of the two books, Sense and Sensibility, is kind of frustration with the field of economics. I mean, there's a lot of great empirical techniques we apply and we know a little math and we try our best to make the world a better place. But I think that our policies could be better, our models could be more realistic, our ability to forecast the future, which is critical, could be greater if we learn from other fields. And there's plenty of evidence, Greg, that economists are pretty unusual among the disciplines in terms of how insular they are. And I'll give you one quick bit of data that I know Saul gets excited to hear that after we did the hardcover, but if you look at the paperback at Sense and Sensibility, we lead off with the results of a survey that we hadn't been aware of until one of the reviews of Sense and Sensibility came out. And it, it asked people in different disciplines, these are professors in the United States, is there anything to learn from fields other than your own? And, you know, 79% of psychology professors said, sure, there is. I'm shocked that it wasn't 95. But anyway, 73% of sociologists and, you know, this was generally among the social scientists, 70 to 80% said yes. And there was one noted, notable outlier, Saul, and that was only 42% of economists said there was anything to learn from other fields. And then when you go in there and say, well, what's the field you can learn from, Saul? Was it sociology, anthropology, psychology, political science? What was the field that most economists thought we should get out of our comfort zone, leave our compartment, and embrace? What was that field, Saul? In my discipline, what can a specialist in Russian literature learn from? And, and he said, 
Russian cultural history as the other field. It's, it's so close that it's hard to even imagine it's another field. Anything more you want to say about <laughs> disciplines and why we've done two books based on, you allude to Greg, an undergraduate class that we've been teaching for 11 years. We've had over 1,200 Northwestern undergrads in it. And it really is about intellectual humility, dialogue, and getting out of your, away from your echo chambers and doing better work by being more open to what you can learn from other fields. So, Yeah, we were trying to distinguish real interdisciplinarity from something that is sometimes mistaken for it. I knew a sociologist here who said, I don't know why we need economists to talk about poverty. We sociologists talk about poverty. Who needs economics? We do it already. And, you know, an English professor might think, well, we can read historical texts too. So who needs historians? We do it. We're interdisciplinary already. But what they're missing is that a discipline is not just a subject matter. It's a way of seeing the world, defining certain questions as interesting, and specifying what kind of evidence would count and what assumptions are made when you start out. And that's a whole different worldview. And what we're trying to suggest is that something can be learned when two different disciplines in the sense of two different ways of seeing things examine the same subject matter and can profit by each other's, each one has shortcomings. You may start with initial assumptions which enable the discipline to proceed, but those assumptions are working assumptions. They're not always true. And another discipline can see it from the outside and add something to it because their initial assumptions, though also limited, are different. And when we think about economics and its imperialism, which which everyone, certainly political science has economics envy, and a lot of these other disciplines are trying to become branches of economics to get more respectability and credibility because economics, it's certainly seen as having more prestige within the university as other departments. But is the imperialism objectionable only insofar as the economists are trying to make what we might think of as deep claims about humanity as opposed to these shallower claims. I mean, economics can be watered down. When I think of economics, I, I don't think of it as making hypotheses about specific human behaviors as much as it is sort of a, a focus on things like trade-offs or thinking about choice. In the same sense that everything in, in biology has to conform to the laws of evolution, even though it doesn't make solid predictions about any particular outcome, and any physical event has to conform to the laws of physics, it seems like every human narrative has to, at some level, conform to certain rules of economics. And the shallower they are, the more universal they are. Can economics be watered down to the point where it's no longer objectionable and it's applied to all human behavior? Or is it necessarily make claims that are challenging? Look, at the level you're talking about, not only is it acceptable, it's absolutely necessary. Humanists need to learn it. They don't understand trade-offs, and they should. Yeah, I would just add, it's a very powerful field. And what I like most, and this is something we emphasize in Chapter 4 of the new book, Minds Wide Shut, that economists really play it pretty straight. We all might have underlying ideological views. You know, I'm an applied econometrician, and I publish my results. And sometimes, and I can give you plenty of examples, so I went in there with priors that turned out to be not what I found empirically, and it never occurs to me to change it or anything. You know, it's like there might be some fields that are more prone to putting in their underlying ideology, but not economics. I mean, it's very, very little of that in my field. And that's, I think, especially in these days of fake truth and all this other stuff, the thing I love most about economics is that 
if you've heard President Biden's talked about, at least in the federal government, a $15 minimum wage. And there are economists who really are much further to the left than I am, and then many more to the right. But we all kind of agree pretty much based on Alan Kruger's work and others for the past 25 years that 15 bucks is about a sweet spot for the minimum wage. And I might prefer to be 25, but the data show that would be too high and it would be serious hiring disincentives. And some people might say, I'll keep it at seven and a quarter, but there's no evidence that that's the sweet spot. So what I'm saying is that what I love about the field of economics is we do our empirical analysis and we do our mathematical models and we see how it comes out. We don't write the conclusion before we do our analyses. And there's always a temptation to do that, but we don't. To contrast that with the limitations of my own field, I have never seen an article in literary criticism that reported, I had this hypothesis, but I investigated and the evidence didn't bear it out. You have an idea and you don't test it, you illustrate it, which always struck me as very peculiar because any theory, any idiotic theory can be illustrated. The test of a theory is not the evidence, but the counter evidence. That would be a very interesting article someone who wrote in literary criticism, something that, that had a hypothesis to be tested. But to get back to this idea that there are the two cultures, I mean, people have been talking about the two cultures of science and humanities for, for a long time. And here, part of what you're writing is in that vein. Do those two cultures still exist? A part of your argument is also that the culture of the humanities is under threat. One of the things that struck me, I was at Duke for many years in the 90s, and what struck me was that literary criticism, the way it was practiced, reminded me a whole lot about of economics. The texts really weren't engaged. It was really the theory dictated what the um, interpretation was going to look like even before one had seen the text. Do we really have two cultures anymore, or has the humanities culture kind of withered on the vine? Well, what you describe is one of the reasons why the humanities are dying. You describe a situation where you don't need the text. The theory is there. You say that, and then you wonder why people don't take literature classes where they read the text. You don't need to read Shakespeare, just have a theory about the world. Of course, if you are saying that yourself, why should students want to read literature? One of the theories is that there is no such thing as great literature. There's only things that hegemonic powers in society tell you is great, but nothing is intrinsically great. Nothing's intrinsically anything. And if you start saying that, well, Shakespeare's not great, it's just, you're just told he's great. Why should students want to take it? Then they're surprised that people are taking literature. If they believe what we're saying, they should not take literature. Well, certainly there's a place for that, right? The study of cultural constructs and understanding why certain texts become important. Certainly in history departments, the history of the text and the history of the production of meaning. I mean, these, these are things that are super important. Why shouldn't they be an integral part of literature? Well, some of it could be part of history, but it's sort of like, look, the paper that the text is printed on, the economics of the bookmark are all relevant to literary studies. But if they replace the actual appreciation of the text, why bother to know the economics of something that has no value anyway? You have to start with actually understand. It's as if somebody studying physics, instead of studying physical phenomena, would be to study the publication facts of physics, the circulation facts of, of physics, something that really does have an effect on the development of physics, but isn't physics. If I can give an example, Greg, I have an old close friend, very illustrious professor of English, and he did some 
books and had a big grant on selling romanticism. And I remember forget a talk he gave. So I never told you this. This was decades ago. And it was about how Wordsworth and the other romantic poets, what they wrote on, how they wrote was all influenced by the economic markets of the time. They needed to make a living. And I thought that was a fascinating along the lines of what you were saying, Greg, you know, in a very interesting and important understanding about the Romantic poets. But he also taught Wordsworth, the words of Wordsworth, and why Wordsworth was worth focusing on. So that was the best of both worlds, because it was a careful analysis of literary text, but within the, the greater world that influenced the production of those texts. I think Saul is really saying, if it's only what influences the production and you never bother to read it, you probably lost something there. And I certainly agree. Yeah, everything he said about the production and selling of Wordsworth would be true if Wordsworth were a terrible poet. If that's true, he's still a great poet. That's not explained by that. So you mentioned that when students show up at university, they, they don't really have an understanding of literature, that they're surprised to find a class in, in literature can be so enjoyable and so educational. Why is that? Why aren't students exposed to literature in a meaningful way before they arrive at university? I do this exercise. I just did it last week with some students. I ask them how they were taught literature in secondary school. And I always get three answers in descending frequency. The most frequent is that they've been taught as a kind of technical exercise. Okay, who's the protagonist? Who's the antagonist? Let's find a lot of symbols. Here's a water symbol. Here's a Christ symbol. You can do that and have no appreciation for why the text is worth reading. It's just a mechanical exercise. So that's the most common way in which it's done. It's very easy to teach that way. You don't have to appreciate literature to do it. The second most common way is start with the presumption that our values of our social class today are the summit of wisdom in the universe forever. And then judge Shakespeare. Shakespeare doesn't measure up to our value on this. That guarantees you can't learn anything because you presume that you're correct and everyone else is wrong. So again, there's no reason to read it if you do it that way. And the third way, it's less, much less than the others, but it still exists, is treat it as a historical document. Dickens tells us about the terrible conditions of factory workers in the 19th century, which is true. But I'm sure that a factory surveyor's report would do an even better job of that. It's true, but it isn't what makes Dickens worth reading. What makes literary work worth reading, what makes it literature to begin with, is that it's of interest to people who know nothing about and care nothing about its original context. That's why I can speak to people in different centuries. Dickens will speak to people in Japan. who know nothing about Victoria, don't care about the condition of the working class in Victorian England, but Dickens still has something to say. That's what makes it literature in the first place. So each of these methods leaves the student with a sense that reading literature is uninteresting. None of them say, listen, you can change your life by reading, understanding what Shakespeare or Tolstoy have to say. They understand human nature. They understand empathy. They understand questions of, of meaning in a life, right and wrong, in a way that nobody else knows. You have a lot to learn from them. That's what gets students interested. But it's not happened. It mostly doesn't happen. So a lot of people, when they talk about university, and especially for the funding of university, they say, well, someone who studies literature, they're going to wind up working at Chick-fil-A. So why should we support, why should we invest in the education, and why should we invest in faculty and, and research in, in literature if it's not going to produce people who can go out and get jobs? This is one of the criticisms. I'm sure as a university administrator, you probably confront this all the time. 
Well, more importantly, Greg, as an empirical economist and labor economist who's done a published many studies over my career of economic returns to different kinds of human capital accumulation. And I can tell you, yeah, starting salaries are much higher in engineering than they are in the humanities. What people neglect to see is that it takes about 15 years and then they're very similar. So I used to give an example, I haven't looked at these data in a while, that somebody starts in classics, I use as trying to think, what's the example people are most likely to say? You know, literature, you learn to write, you can be an editor. How about classics? You study Latin and Greek. So it turns out there's a significantly lower starting salary in the classics, but in 15 years, and I compared it to accounting, thinking something very practical. In 15 years, classics majors, graduates end up making the same as accounts. Now, the future of the present discounted earnings stream after that is not all that different. So you never make up because today's dollars, as you know, Greg, from studying economics, are much more valuable than future dollars. So you have to discount it. So it turns out that there is a significant difference in lifetime earnings discounted into the present by field, but not as great as you would think. And it is really interesting that those classics majors end up making roughly the same as accounting majors at age generally about 37 or so. Saul can talk about enlivening our lives and being better citizens, but you asked specifically mm-hmm. about studies I do, and I'll tell you, it's really overblown in the, in the media that people with humanities degrees are lost. I think they've done right. They learn how to learn. They learn how to communicate. And that's probably why their earnings are much higher than people would expect, but it takes a number of years. Why should state legislatures support pure mathematics, which has no application? Areas of physics that will never be used. That's an an equivalent question. If knowledge is valuable in itself, it will have an indirect effect. A culture where people can understand each other, empathize with each other, see things from different points of view, which is what literature would teach, is not going to wind up with people hating anybody who differs from. That's what literature should do, and we badly need it right now. That, that's the theme of our, of our other book. But of course, you have to teach literature that way. And that's the problem is we haven't been doing that recently, and we're seeing some of the bad effects of that. Your point is that there is actually measurable impact in terms of desirable outcomes, such as the promotion of empathy. I want to dig into that. I remember Martha Nussbaum wrote a, wrote a book on this about 20 years ago. And of course, there are scientists that have attempted to confirm this hypothesis. But what is it that's so special about literature that enables us to develop a sense of empathy? What is this sense of empathy? I mean, isn't it part of it is about seeing the commonality of all humans? And isn't that just sort of a search for another universal knowledge or the search for a general understanding? I mean, one of the attacks on economics is it has a very shallow view of human nature. And, and so, you know, literature can help you flesh out that view of human nature and provide a much richer view of what humans are all about. So in Sense and Sensibility, we do reference some of those studies that you mentioned, Greg, that empathy pays off in many, many ways. And how do you measure it? And how do you get it? So there is a literature on that, that we haven't independently contributed to, but we do acknowledge in Sense and Sensibility. In both books, we mention something you just said, which is that trying to get out of your own self, trying to truly understand what it's like to be a different gender or sexuality, sexual expression, race, ethnicity. And I think I would say, most importantly, a different sense of right and wrong. I happen to be observant too. There's a certain view that's informed by my weekly study of the Hebrew Bible, 
but I love reading great fiction where somebody has a very different view of morality from mine. And it helps me understand why I believe certain things and maybe I should believe other things. And I, I don't think anything is better than fiction, and which is why every night after my job as a president, a professor and everything else, and as a pundit and all the things I do, I lie in bed and I spend an hour and I read fiction. And it doesn't have to be Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. It could be any number of much more recent and current novels. I mean, I, I order on Amazon two a week, only fiction. I don't read nonfiction because this is my life. And, and it really transports me every day into a different identity. And I don't know how better to get out of my comfort zone as a New York male, straight, 67-year-old, high-income Jew into a very different world than literature. We try to argue that, and we try to back it up with empirical studies in both of the books. Yeah, look, if you think of what you do when you read a great novel, you identify with a character. The author gets you to see the world from the heroine's perspective, let's say. You understand how she's making a decision, what she's thinking, which you can't do with people in real life. You can't trace their thoughts and feelings. Now, this would be true for other media as well, right? So good quality cinema and television can do this to some degree as well, right? Yes, to some degree. But no television program can get you inside the thought sequence of a person. That's exactly what the great novelists did. You understand all the things that are not said, that the person is thinking, that they're barely feeling and barely putting into words. And you do this for hundreds and hundreds of pages, and you make a habit, and you do it with several different people with different points of view, and you see not only how character A sees character B, but you see how character B sees character A and how C sees them both. You see the interaction of points of view, and not just from the outside. You go from each one from within. You develop a habit of seeing the world from different perspectives by doing it often enough. Philosophers can tell you, empathize. You're not even clear what that means, much less having developed a habit before it. But if you do it with the greatest novelist, you'll develop a habit and you'll be able to see and feel other points. And therefore, you will just not assume that, gee, anybody who doesn't see or feel exactly the way I do must be evil or stupid. No great novelist thinks that. But Craig, I like your point that while really good fiction can transport you, it's not unique in that. And I should say, as the husband of a screenwriter, that really good films and TVs could do it. As the father of an art historian, <laughs> great art can do it. And as someone who loves music, I would say great music. But I certainly agree with Saul that literature gives you insight that other fields do as well, but nobody does it better than literature, at least it seems to me. Have we given up on that project? I mean, it seems that most people in large parts of academia would argue it's impossible for you, Morty, as a 67-year-old white male to understand what it's like to be a 22-year-old Latino female. And for you to pretend like you can is a form of imperialism and that you might as well just give up and not even bother to try. Well, I would never pretend, Greg. It gives me insight and it provides questions for me when I talk to somebody very differently in a very different background than mine to say, tell me more about this. I want to learn more about it. So yeah, you're right. I would never say that reading a novel like a recent one is a gay woman, Muslim woman. It's a very different world. I never would say I understand that world. It's not a binary, right? I mean, isn't it a matter of degree? Right. I think it is degree. And unless you live it, you're never going to know it completely. But unless you expose yourself to it, you're not going to know the different 
sense of right and wrong, for example, even exists. The logic of that argument is, well, we can't do something perfectly, therefore we shouldn't do it at all. Since there can't be perfect freedom, we might as well have totalitarianism. It's not a good argument. I think you said somewhere that within every fundamentalist is a relativist waiting to be liberated and vice versa. Yeah, meaning an extreme relativist. Look, what extreme relativists and extreme dogmatists have in common is the idea that either we have certain knowledge or we have nothing. The one decides we do have certain knowledge, and the other decides we have nothing. But they both agree. It's not as certain as, you know, Euclidean geometry. It's nothing. But think of the knowledge you use to get around the world, from crossing the street to talking to people. It's not scientifically certain. And you make mistakes. You're still a lot better off, know a lot more than you did when you were five years old about those things, right? Mm -hmm. Almost all the knowledge that we need in the world, and particularly ethical knowledge, the knowledge of other people, is not demonstrable in that way. But it, you certainly know people who are better or worse at it. Well, I think you guys both highlight the importance of what you call uh, casuistry, right? Which is the art of perspective taking and more case-based approach to understanding the world. I was actually surprised that you didn't reference the law at all in either of the texts because I studied law and in law, you combine both kind of a deductive and an inductive approach to understanding not only positive understanding of the law in practice, but also kind of a normative understanding of what you should do in any given situation. And my understanding of economics has always been like that, especially when you teach in a business school with the case method, you teach a course in, in strategy and you're trying to figure out what you should do. And it's entirely case-based. It's very, very inductive. And you try to extract some general rules, but those general rules are, are ones that are very contextual and very case-based. Is this method of approaching knowledge, this practical phrenesis approach to learning, which literature is really good at, is this something which is withering in, in other disciplines? Is economics losing its capacity for storytelling? Again, when I think of economics, I always think of it the way Keynes said that economics is the science of model development and the art of model selection. And I always thought that incorporated the, the possibility of these different approaches. There was a lot in that question. There is a little bit about, we're not lawyers, but there is a little bit in minds wide shut about how you interpret the Constitution, but mainly in footnotes. So there's a little there. And it's certainly an area in which we should study more. I love that quote from Keynes and the misreading of Adam Smith, which is a section of both of these books. He never said people were only motivated by self-greed, by personal greed. He never said that people don't care about other people. He never said that laissez-faire, that the government should stay away. The invisible hand was misinterpreted. But Adam Smith, if you actually, and I've been able to teach Wealth of Nations and Theory of Moral Sentiments, that it's full of stories. It's full of narrative. And as you said, Keynes, too. I, I think that with the transformation of economics from the late 40s and on into much more of applied math, it's hard to put the stories in there. But a professor of mine at Penn, Bob Schiller, from whom I learned a little bit of econometrics and macroeconomics, won the Nobel Prize. And He's pushing narrative economics. What have we lost in terms of our models by abstracting so much away from any human understanding or behavior? Milton Freeman said, it doesn't matter. You could have unrealistic assumptions as long as your predictions work. Our predictions aren't all that good. So I think putting stories back into economics be really important. And I think you're right. I think that they were featured more prominently if you go back to 1776 and the start of the publication of Wealth of Nations and the start of modern economics, 
And then we kind of lost it with a lot of math. And I love math and I love econometrics, but I love that Bob Schiller, and he has the credibility because he's a Nobel laureate. You know, he has the credibility to say that economics needs to go back more to its founding principles, which include narrative. Isn't the model a story when you say we've got a lemons problem, right? And there's a story there that it evokes or a prisoner's dilemma. We have these highly stylized models and we can reference them just like we could reference in war and peace, right? Can we just sort of say, oh yeah, that's kind of like this scenario or that's kind of like this situation. We have a very stylized story that's sitting in the back of our heads that we're referencing. The prisoner's dilemma is not a story. It's a situation. There's no story there. Once a choice is made, of course, then you've got a story. But the situation is not a story. And you can have absolutely minimal stories with one little event, which won't do much for you. Compare that with, let's say, the sort of story you get in a Jane Austen or a George Eliot novel with the full complexities of human behavior and thought there. I see sometimes, you know, analytic philosophers analyzing an ethical problem. They'll begin by saying, okay, now imagine Jones in this situation. And let me tell you, one principle I've learned is nobody is never an abstract person in a purely abstract, denatured situation. They come from a particular culture. They have a set of values. They've had experiences earlier the day they're making the choice. The choice is embedded in all sorts of expectations and assumptions, many of which they don't know. In a particular psychology, there is no Jones. And sure, you can learn something that way, but there's a great deal you don't learn that way. And that's the sort of story I'm, I'm talking about. Not something as minimal as the king died and the queen died of grief. It's a story, all right, but it isn't much of a story. Mm -hmm. Right. You point out that it's not a good story if you can summarize it, right? It's not something you're really going to learn a whole lot from if it's something that's easily compacted into a few pithy remarks. I love your, you actually went through the history of the realist novel and listed a whole bunch of novels with one quick sentence describing the whole point of the book, which I, I thought was fantastic. Glad you liked that, Craig. That's the brilliance of Gary Saul Morrison. And we did a lot of book talks just a couple of years ago for Sense and Sensibility, which is now out in Mandarin and doing really well, I hear, mainland China. I hope they appreciate Saul's one-liners about each of the books. And I would read it out loud when we gave book talks and Saul would beam and the audience would just absolutely fall on the floor with laughter. I think it's one of the funniest things in either of these. We've actually done three books together. Probably my favorite paragraph in all three books is Saul's mocking the one-liner that you take away from each of the great yeah. bits of literature. It's just only Saul could be so clever. I had a lot of fun, I must say, with doing that. But it's funny because it's not much of an exaggeration. The first author I ever loved was Mark Twain. And I thought about it. the best humor exaggerates, but not by that much. Just enough to point out what's problematic about the situation it's talking about. I want to circle back to this idea of perspective taking, because at least in my experience teaching, I find it very difficult to stimulate perspective taking in the classroom. People are, are very concerned about taking positions. Even when I assign the position, I say, look, take this position. People will say, well, I don't really believe this. And so therefore, I'm going to kind of half-ass it when it comes to you arguing through this position. And in a law class, it's really difficult to run a law class if that's the case. It's very difficult to run a course on, on strategy if that's the case. Well, they do it on how well they took the position they don't believe in. Make their grade depend on it. We've tried that in this class, by the way, and it works really well. Yeah, one of my favorite intellectual history professors made us write a review of Pascal written by Voltaire. This was the final exam. We would have to write a book review. And if you didn't actually inhabit the author's 
perspective, whether it was Freud or Marx or, or whoever, then you got a terrible grade. Do you guys actually use that technique? I, I'm surprised that you're able to get people to do that. We do, Greg. People do whatever to get their grade and get them out of their comfort zone. And Saul always says that the best papers are ones where you represent, you depict your opponent in a way that your opponent would accept. And that's the problem. Usually it's a straw person for conception of your opponent. What's your great line? So if you don't know your, your opponent's best argument, you don't know your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a John Stuart Mill, you know. Yeah, John Stuart Mill's great line about He who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. Yeah, it's a great line. Even if you have the right opinion, you're believing it like the grossest superstition. Well, one of the other themes that I think you talk about a lot is this idea of the hedgehog versus the fox. And I've been doing this podcast now since January. And I, I think about 80% of the authors that I've interviewed have quoted Aristotle, and about 60% have quoted Isaiah Berlin. <laughs> but you guys do far more than quote Isaiah Berlin. You actually dig deep into this notion of what it means to be a fox. And you go through and, and talk about a whole bunch of different hedgehogs, from Gary Becker to W.W. W. Rostow and Jared Diamond and some others. And you talk about the limitations of that approach. And I, and I was wondering, the opposite of hedgehog is not a fox. The opposite of a, of a hedgehog is someone who is a relativist, right? The opposite of a hedgehog is someone who thinks that there is no underlying insight that you can draw from these disconnected little bits of data, right? And the fox seems to be sort of something that's, as an economist, I always want the Goldilocks solution, right? I always want the best thing to be the peak of the trade-off. So maybe talk a little bit about what is this danger of hedgehogism, and is it really dangerous or is it just dangerous if we fail to include it as part of a, a portfolio. I mean, I think of a fox as someone who observes these hedgehogs trying to push everything to the limits and then assembling a more complex insight about the world from bits and pieces of these different monolithic perspectives. Yeah, that's being a fox. A fox can learn from hedgehogs, but a hedgehog can't assemble several hedgehogs and pick and choose. Then he's not a hedgehog. A hedgehog, his theory explains everything. A hedgehog is usually has a certain situation in mind and generalizes it to the universe. It applies extremely well to the original situation and reasonably well to things like it. If you take it that way and go back to the original situation and use the insight to apply to that situation or things like it, you'll get the best of the hedgehog without being one. Right. I mean, it seems like if you take this rational choice model and just push it and push it and push it, it uncovers a whole lot of If you take that perspective, perspective taking is about saying, I'm going to really dig into this, or I'm going to really, really dig into the microbial view of history, or I'm I'm really going to dig into this teleological view of history. I'm really going to pursue these and see what it illuminates in the same way that if you look at the world through ultraviolet lens, it's going to illuminate a bunch of things that you wouldn't see if you're looking at it with the more comprehensive lens. Yeah, good analogy. Hedgehogs are relative. I would just call that another kind of hedgehog. This positive hedgehogism, we know everything. Negative hedgehogism, absolute relativism, it doesn't matter. Foxiness is neither one. We know more or less, but we don't know everything. The only thing I would add to that, Greg, and I love your point about the opposite 180 degrees. Fox is something else than 180 degrees away from a hedgehog. I hadn't thought about that. I think that's really true. But I think getting back to what you said before, you have to ask about the sociology and economics of being a hedgehog versus a fox you're a lot more likely to win a Nobel Prize, to write a bestseller, to get really rich if you're a hedgehog. Mm -hmm. And it's no surprise, you you open your book and you say, 
know, we open our books and the three together saying, well, we're going to try to learn together and try to move things forward. We don't open up saying we're going to explain the last 13,000 years of human history. We don't open up by saying we have the secret for all human behavior. We don't start off by saying we figured out a formula that will 100% ensure that the developing world will become developed. It's a little harder to be rewarded unless you take really bold views. And I'm not a philosopher of science, but I think that a number of scientists and social scientists and humanists even have been rewarded for those bold views. And I think if it moves forward, so I would say the discourse, that's great. So thank God for hedgehogs, but we're not hedgehogs. Well, Luther has a religion and, and Erasmus doesn't. So, I mean, it, it does pay to be a hedgehog, right? I see what you mean. Yes. I assume that you got that from our book, right? So there's a, yeah. it's all wrote it, of course, but there's a couple of pages I find incredibly valuable to understand the mindset of a fox versus a hedgehog. And that's the Luther Erasmus discussion as Saul narrates it. And it really is eye opening, I think. And it's funny that a couple of the reviews have also, early reviews, Greg, have focused on that as really explaining with an historical perspective exactly our point of why it's important to get out of your silo, get out of your echo chamber. It's so easy to live in those now with, are you a MSNBC or Fox News? Are you New York Times or this? And it's so easy and much easier than it was when I grew up. But what does it mean to get out of that comfort zone? What does it mean to be open to learning from each other? And that very important debate that the two of them have, I think really illustrates it. You say the art of being a fox is the art of self-overhearing. Presumably stepping out of your perspective, looking at it from a couple other points of view and spotting its flaws, and then re-inhabiting it with maybe greater confidence, less overconfidence, but maybe more real confidence once one's stress-tested these ideas, stress-tested these beliefs. Yeah, imagine you're arguing with a friend or a spouse. Doesn't it pay not to say, how can he or she say something like that, but say, I wonder how I sound, right? What is the point of view that they're taking and how does that I look to them? Because I look to them the way they look to me or we wouldn't be arguing at all. That's what I mean by the art of self over here. Or another way it would work is if you use an argument that if the other side used it, you would see what's wrong with it. Don't use it. And always ask that question about one of your arguments. Is this something that I would reject if the other side did it this way of reasoning? It's very easy to do that, by the way. That one is easy to do. And when people don't do it, since it's so easy, you know that they're not interested in the truth, they're interested in winning. I was interviewing actually someone yesterday who wrote a book called Randomistas. He's a member of the Australian Parliament. And he cited this example of where a group of doctors were told, here's the p-value, here's the trial. And it's basically saying that doctor's intervention is convincingly effective. And they said, well, then we need to mandate that it happens. And then he said, oh, whoops, I got it backwards. I actually meant to show that the exact opposite is the case. And then the doctors were rendered speechless because they wanted to agree with the, the conclusion, but then the method was legit as long as it gave them the conclusion they were looking for. I wanted to circle back and close with a discussion of education because both of you are educators. I don't think that if you were to stand up as a maybe you have, but to stand up as a university administrator and to say that the the purpose of education is to promote wisdom and judgment, what would the response be? I mean, no one can object to wisdom and judgment, but when you put teeth on it, then that's when maybe objection will start to kick when people understand what it takes to promote wisdom and judgment. 
has this ever been the purpose of university education, except in our dreams and our, our fantasies? Is it a realistic hope that we can promote wisdom and judgment through university education? I think it is, Greg. And as you pointed out, so and I have been teaching for a long time. I think this was what my 43rd consecutive year teaching undergrads. And so I don't know if it was consecutive, but even a couple of years more than that. So we've seen different generations come and go and we realize different challenges. We're both very fond of the Generation Zers. They've gone through a lot, but they really care about the world in a way, in a more selfless way, I would say, than most of the other generations I've seen. But when people ask me as the president, when forgetting the graduate and professional, and that's more than half of our students, but just say the undergrads, when they leave Northwestern, what are the qualities that you want them to bring with them into the world? And there's a number of things people agree on. They want them to be quantitatively adept, Greg, like you are. They don't be comfortable nowadays with some programming, but more generally comfortable with numbers. You want them to have some aesthetic appreciation. I think, Greg, that's mentioned less often than it used to be when I first became a president 22 years ago. And then you read what the presidents said. It was really important. What were the important outcomes of education in the 40s, 50s, 60s, into the 70s? A lot of it was about more of a humanistic understanding. And then to the credit, as things have evolved, everybody wants people to be comfortable and understand diversity and thrive for true inclusion, not just the words, but the true meaning of it. That's really important. And while that's great, but I would add intellectual humility. I think if you graduate from a place like your alma mater or where Saul and I have been privileged to teach over a career, you get the tools to educate yourself for a lifetime. But Do you necessarily get the intellectual humility to realize that when you get your undergraduate degree or even a graduate professional school degree that your education is closer to beginning than ending? I think about how much more I know about everything than the day I got my PhD from Penn back in 79. So it's the intellectual humility. And I think that's actually all three of her books. So that's really a theme is it's very comforting to, to just think you know the answers and not want to expand your mind. In fact, when people ask me, the best thing about being a a university or college president is the intellectual vitality of it. Every week, listening to lectures from our faculty and from visitors in fields far different than my own. When I was an economics professor, I went to the labor economics seminar and a couple of other seminars, and I didn't even go to seminars outside my field within economics. And now every week, it's literature and it's the sciences it's engineering and it's philosophy and it's religion. So that's what I think. I think that we should hold out to teach people not what to think, but how to think. It sounds trite, but it's really important. I mean, nobody does it better than Saul. I mean, you asked in the beginning how I first met Saul. And when I got here 12 years ago, I looked at enrollment. I'm an empirical economist. I said, what's the single most ubiquitous class that our seniors end up graduating having taken? What's the common experience? And I expect it to be equivalent of Ec-10 at Harvard. You know, there it's Har- you know, at Harvard, it's Econ. And at Stanford, it's, I think it's a coding course. And, and here it was Saul Morrison. It was Russian literature. And I said, what? You know, he teaches a course called War and Peace. And that's what they read. It's a long book. It's a short quarter. He does it. I was taken aback. And I was thinking, is that common experience? And I was thinking, yeah. So I, I asked Saul to come over for coffee. And I said, Tell me about how you teach this. What's your approach? And it's learning from the text. It's taking the characters as your own. And it's the brilliant way he teaches. And I left that, went from, I never told you, I was a little skeptical that that was the most common experience. A third of our 
undergrads graduating, having studied Russian literature with Gary Saul Morrison. And now I'm, it's a great source of pride. But I tell you, Greg, you know, at alumni events, people ask about why it is that and not something else. And I say, there's nothing better than Russian literature and Saul Morrison. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate both of you. And as we go through these times with COVID and everything else, I think there's some important lessons in both books. Wish we could spend more time speaking, but I appreciate both of you showing up. Don't forget, Sense and Sensibility, Minds Wide Shut. We barely scratched the surface. You need to buy the books or you need to go find Saul's class and take it. And with that, thank you so much. Appreciate speaking to both of you. Thank you so much, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.